welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Kobe and I talk with Dan Bonet, professor of computer science at Stanford and the director of the Stanford Center for Blockchain Research. We cover his most recent work in ZK Tech, both in education and in research, and then we walk through innovative use cases that he and his students have been working on since our last episode. It was great to have Dan back on the show, and I hope these ideas inspire listeners to jump into the research or maybe build some of these concepts into new products. Now, before we start in, I want to invite you to ZK Hack 3, a virtual event happening right now and running until December 13th. It's all online, so you can join from wherever you are. ZK Hack consists of a multi-week series of workshops from the best teams working in ZK. Teams like Aztec, Risk Zero, Alio, Anoma, Scroll, Mina, Sismo, and EF's Privacy and Scaling Exploration Group. These workshops are designed to onboard and show developers how they can start working with ZK DSLs, platforms, tooling, and tech. Each workshop is different, so have a look at our schedule and sign up for the events that you're most interested in. In tandem with this, we are running three puzzle competitions. With this, you are meant to find a bug in the ZK protocol and exploit it as fast as possible. We release one every week, and the winners of these will get prizes, spotlights, and lots of cred within the community. I also want to highlight that the ZK Jobs Fair is happening as part of ZK Hack, and it's happening this week on December 1st. The workshop hosts, the teams I mentioned before, will be there to meet with potential hires. The event is held in Gather.Town. It's a virtual space. You get a customized avatar. You can run from booth to booth, getting to know different hiring teams. This is a great way to get to know the teams before you actually go through the formal application process, or just come to hang out with other participants from ZK Hack and see what kind of jobs are out there. So if you want to attend, be sure to join our event on December 1st. This is the ZK Hack Sessions 4 with Aztec. At the end of that event, we're going to be sharing links to the ZK Jobs Fair. Or if you're already signed up for the ZK Hack newsletter, we'll also be sharing the links there. So yeah, hope to see you at the job fair. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Mina Protocol. The need for private, trustless solutions has never been more clear. A new era of ZK-powered decentralized applications is coming, and Mina is the place to build them. Introducing Mina's ZK Spark Cohort Zero, where developers do tutorials and build zero-knowledge applications, or ZK apps, and get rewarded. There are a quarter of a million Mina tokens up for grabs for ZK Spark Cohort Zero participants. Mina's ZK apps are written in TypeScript, so developers can easily get started without learning a custom programming language like other ZK protocols. To sign up for ZK Spark Cohort Zero, head to minaprotocol.com forward slash ZK podcast. And if you're not tuning into the podcast live, no worries. Mina will be launching additional ZK Spark cohorts. Just visit minaprotocol.com to check out the best way to get involved. So thanks again, Mina Protocol. And now here's our episode. Today, Kobe and I are here with Dan Bonet. He is a professor of computer science at Stanford, and he's the director of the Stanford Center for Blockchain Research. Welcome to the show, Dan. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I should actually say welcome back to the show. You were on episode 100 many years ago, and it's very great to have you back for this episode, which I think should be episode 256. I wanted to pick a special one. Wow, I get the best numbers. (laughs) Definitely. And hi, Kobe. Hello. Good to be here. So... Dan, I want to ask you, in the last 
three years. It's been three years since you've been on. I mean, I feel like there's so much we can cover. Do you want to share maybe some of the highlights, sh- maybe shifting work or focus from the last time you've been on? Yeah, it's been, my God, it's been a while, right? Uh, over three years and so much has happened. I think the Z- zero knowledge world has uh, changed quite a bit in the last three years. So we're, we're seeing things now that honestly, even three years ago seemed, seemed quite uh, far away. There, there are lots of, lots of uh, changes that have happened. If I can kind of go through uh, the high points in, uh, very, very quickly. I think the whole development of uh, ZK EVM and the progress that's been made towards making that real, you know, that's something that three years ago seemed seemed very far. And yet, yet you know, now yeah. we're almost there, right? I mean, we already have some uh, available ZK EVMs uh, working at decent speeds, which is really, really quite impressive. The rollout of ZK rollups has uh, been very impressive. You know, they're, they're now live and uh, very supportive. I think we're going to be seeing uh, in the near future uh, ZK-based bridges, so trustless that are made possible by the by the use of uh, these succinct and efficient proofs. So in that sense, things have been moving um, really at, at quite a remarkable uh, speed. I think we also maybe even uh, last time when I, when I was on the show, we talked about using zero knowledge for compliance, and that has actually become even more important uh, these days. So maybe we'll touch on that mm-hmm. like later uh, later in the episode. So yeah, so um, ZK has kind of become even more central and more of an enabling tool for the for the blockchain ecosystem than it was three years ago. It's really quite remarkable to see. Definitely. I want to just touch on something before we jump into some of the topics and new works. And that's that like three years ago when we had our interview, soon after that, you and I started a planning of a course, the ZK course. Now, this ZK course, I teased on the show. And like, I don't know if everyone realizes how far we got. Like, we actually recorded a lot of stuff. But then the pandemic hit and it put everything on freeze. And one of the challenges with research like this and and topics like this, as much as we tried at the time to make what we were making like atemporal so it would last forever... Time went on and actually some of it at least became somewhat obsolete. We weren't able to use it. But this year, I was so happy because in a way we got to accomplish at least part of what we had set out to do. You hosted three modules of the ZK Whiteboard sessions. This is something that our listeners might be familiar with. I I often tease it in the intros. So this is like these three modules that act as like an onboarding, a mini course into ZK Tech. So yeah, I just wanted to sort of mention that because yeah, that was a project I was I was really bummed we didn't get to do, and I'm really glad we got to do something this year. Yeah, actually, we did, we did get quite uh, far along, and then yeah, and then the pandemic hit, everything froze, and that kind of uh, uh, messed up our schedule somewhat. So yeah, Anna, thank you so much for doing the zk whiteboards. I think that was a wonderful way to kind of make this happen, and now now it's deployed. I, I was very happy to record the first three sessions. Uh, basically, the first three sessions are kind of an over- intro to zero knowledge, right? It's kind of going through totally. what zero knowledge is and how it's constructed. It's even breaking it up into the uh, components of, uh, you know, uh, uh, commitment schemes and uh, IOPs, and then we construct each one of those in the in the session. So yeah, so those three sessions take you basically from zero to plonk. Uh, mm. And so good overview. And then of course the the rest of the zk whiteboard sessions are amazing. They kind of go through everything that's been happening in the space. Totally. And we, I think there might be more of these in the works. I'd love to do more with you at some point in the future too. I do want to mention something that our audience may not be aware of, but there is this like mystery, never aired interview of you, me and Vitalik 
back in 2019 or 2020, early 2020, talking about the future of ZK and all the use cases. And it's never aired. And I was just realizing this in prep for this uh, interview that it would be, maybe it'd be really fun to kind of dig that out if we can find it. Yeah. Yeah, you should. We should definitely post it. Uh, yeah, Anna, you should definitely post it on uh, yeah. wh- wherever you think is appropriate. Yeah, I remember we discussed uh, applications of obfuscation and kind of advanced crypto to blockchain. So it's yeah, it was a fun interview, and uh, I think it's a lot. Parts of it, many parts of it, are still very, very relevant. So it'd be great if we can post it. We had this. I think we had a, a different way of categorizing how we thought about zk. So even that change might be might be fascinating. Yeah, I just wanted to throw it out there. If we find this, we'll definitely try to put it up on the podcast YouTube channel or something like that for people to see. Just I wanted to also give people context. If we do find it, this is years old. <laughs> so it's kind of like a from the archives. Yeah, never aired. It's interesting to see if you predicted the amount of Plonk variants <laughs> that came out. Oh, boy. Did we know? Uh, was Plonk a thing then? I don't think Plonk was... Plonk was just... Plonk just came out, yeah. Wow. Plonk was uh, just starting out its journey. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Crazy. I don't know if we covered it, actually. I don't think we did, or at least not in depth at the time. So a lot has changed. I want to talk a little bit more about general ecosystem stuff, though, because... Do you feel nowadays there is just like more resources, education? Like, are you doing more education around ZK in general as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In our regular course, in all of our courses on cryptography now, we uh, we dive much more deeper into ZK than we did before. Um, I have to say what's happened is kind of interesting. You know, the idea for using proof systems to outsource computation, which is kind of what's happening here, is, is old, right? Mm-hmm. This dates back to the early 1990s. You know, there's this paper that I, I like to uh, to cite. Actually, I like to quote. It's called the BFLS paper. The quote says, goes something like, uh, a single laptop can verify the computation of a herd of supercomputers. Yeah, this is like the vision back in the early 1990s. And I think what's been holding the field back a little bit uh, since then is the fact that, you know, computers got really fast. So, you know, our iPhones now are like basically supercomputers. And so we were missing an example of a slow and expensive computer that would then be used to verify the computation of very fast computers, right? Because computers just got generally so fast that it was difficult to justify outsourcing computation uh, in a verifiable way. And now all of a sudden we got our example of a slow and expensive computer, right? It's basically a layer one blockchain. Amazing. Yeah, so because a layer one, layer one blockchain is so expensive and you know not particularly a fast computer, it actually now makes a lot of sense to outsource computation to a GPU and have the GPU prove to the blockchain that what it did is correct. And that's literally the kind of the reason why ZK rollups and ZK bridges and all that have taken off. It's really just examples of outsourcing computation. So it's really quite fascinating and beautiful to see that uh, the vision from 30 years ago has kind of come now to a fruition in the blockchain space because of what blockchains are. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just wonderful to see. So let's hear a little bit about some of the recent work you've been doing in the ZK space. Maybe we can talk about some of the use cases that you've been exploring. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, so there's actually a lot going on. Maybe I should say that like the one thing that's really important to stress is that the blockchain community is building, kind of developing the technology of zero knowledge and you know, advancing it by leaps and bounds. But what's interesting is it's like, it's like similar to the Apollo program, right? I mean, they were going to the moon, and but it, in the course of going to the moon, they developed all these other technologies that were useful in other industries. 
So cool. And what's interesting is the same thing is happening in the world of zero knowledge, right? It's being driven by blockchain applications. The blockchain industry is the one that's kind of developing and, and uh, commercializing these kind of systems. But because these things have now become so easy to use, you know, we have lots of frameworks that are quite easy for people to program in that now there are all, all of a sudden applications for ZK that are outside of the blockchain space altogether. And I want to give you one example. Like this is kind of a, a fun thing that we recently did. This is with one of my students, uh, Trisha Data, and it has to do with um, using zero knowledge to fight disinformation. Mm. So let me tell you the story. So the problem is this. So uh, as you know, when you read a newspaper, there's a picture usually that comes with a news article. And the picture is kind of related to what the news article is discussing. The problem is, how do you know that the picture that you're looking at is really a picture that was taken at the place and time that the news article is discussing, right? So maybe you're reading an article about a war zone. Well, how do you know that the picture that you're seeing is really from that particular war zone? Maybe it was taken somewhere else at a different time. And this is not like a a hypothetical uh, threat. This is really happening. And it's happening so much that if you just search for uh, disinformation through images, you'll find many, many hits of ways to try to combat this, ways to educate the public about how to tell if an image is authentic or not. And so the media the media industry was kind of aware of this problem. Generally, the news industry is aware of this problem. And they put together this interesting standard. Yeah, the standard is called the C2PA standard. It stands for uh, Content, Provenance, and Authenticity. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, let me tell you about the, your listeners might be interested in this standard in general, uh, in that what it does is uh, it embeds signing keys inside of cameras. Yeah, so like Sony has a camera that literally just came out this summer where the camera has a signature key in, embedded in the camera, proposed, supposedly embedded in such a way that it's hard to extract the secret key from the camera. And then every time the camera takes a picture, it basically signs the data of the picture and it signs the metadata associated with it. Yeah, so it produces one signature that binds the picture to the location, the time, and other metadata that's associated with the uh, with the image. Yeah. Uh, so now all of a sudden we have yeah we have a signed photo that anyone can verify uh, and see when and where the photo was was taken. Uh, okay. So newspapers in principle could embed those photos in the articles, and now people can verify that really the image they're looking at really did come from one of these auth- authorized cameras. Now I have to say there are lots of issues with this design. So maybe even your listeners are starting to think about. Um, all sorts of interesting challenges uh, with this design. But one challenge is that what comes out of a camera typically is a very large image. Yeah, these fancy cameras, they, these are like 30 megapixel cameras. So they produce very, very large images and newspapers don't need to send to their readers such large files. So what they do is they resize the images, they downsize them, maybe they crop them, you know, maybe they grayscale them. They do these standard operations on these images before they embed it in a news article. Uh, and then they send this edited uh, image to the reader. The problem is, once you've edited the image, the reader can no longer verify the signature, right? You need the original signature. You need the original image in order to verify the signature. So what do we do? Yeah, so C2PA had some mechanism proposed in the standard that is not quite secure. The correct solution is zero-knowledge proofs. Yeah, and let me me explain why. How do zero-knowledge proofs come in here, come come to the rescue here? So imagine you, you run your editing software and it resizes the image. What you'd like to do is then replace the signature on the edited image with a zero-knowledge proof that says this edited image is the result of a properly signed image uh, that all we did to it was just resize it. 
Yeah, so the secret witness in the zero-knowledge proof is the original image and the original signature. And the statement we're proving, A, the original image was properly signed, and B, if you apply resizing to the original image, you end up with the image that was actually sent to the browser. Yeah, so now the browser basically will get the, the downsampled image along with the ZK proof. The reader can just click on that image. The browser will verify the proof and, and uh, the reader will know, oh yeah, this image really is taken at, at this place and at this time. That's fascinating. And so we did a lot of experiments on how to actually, how well this works in practice. And it turns out it works really well. Like um, the tools for zero knowledge have come so far that actually, even though the picture is huge, it's 33 megabytes of data, right? It's a huge, uh, huge amount of data that needs to be processed here. We can actually do uh, cropping and resizing and grayscaling in basically proof generation is under a second. Yeah. And so we end up with a very short proof. The proof is like 400 bytes that gets attached to the edited image uh, that gets sent to the browser. The browser can verify that the only thing that was done to the image was just, you know, uh, a resizing of the image uh, to make it smaller and nothing else was changed. Right. Maybe the image was grayscaled, but nothing else uh, was changed. Verifying the proof is like blindingly fast, right? This is like milliseconds yep. in the browser. So yeah, so it, it works. It works quite well. Uh, yeah. So now I'm hoping that uh, we can actually demonstrate this to the uh, you know to the Associated Press. If any of your readers happens to be affiliated with any news organization, please reach out to us. It'd be great <laughs> to actually have this deployed and used in the real world because it works. Cool. It literally just works. So this is really this is really interesting because in that use case that you just described, like resizing. This, this, you use zero knowledge proofs for the, for succinctness, basically. So theoretically, you could still send the image and had, have interested users download it and verify all the transformations themselves. But it actually can be even more interesting because you can also apply blurring and transformations of that sort that where you would actually also use the ZK properties of these proofs, wow. which could be really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. So the, the reason they resize the image is because they want to save bandwidth. Yeah. So having readers download the original image basically would kind of uh, uh, nullify that. But you're absolutely right. Cropping and blurring would actually yeah. be now be utilizing the ZK property. So that's absolutely right. So good good application. What's interesting to me is that this is like, a, I don't know, it's a fairly important application of ZK. It's got nothing to do with the blockchain. Yeah because mm -hmm. it's just basically verifying images. But the reason this is possible, right? The reason, the only reason this is possible is because ZK technology has advanced so much that we can generate proofs on huge statements. These are 30, 30 megabyte statements. Yeah, and we can generate them in, in a reasonable amount of time, you know, quite quickly. And the only reason this is possible is because the blockchain community has kind of developed ZK proofs to the point where they're this fast. So I think it's a kind of exciting story wow. of how blockchain technology is bleeding into other other areas of society. I love hearing about stuff like this. I feel like there's a desire for more and more use cases, more and more ideas. I have never heard this one. So I think that's really exciting. And I feel like what you just described also potentially opens it up to other kinds of mediums too. Like that, the one you just referred to is image, but maybe it could be audio. Maybe it could be something else. So that's really cool. So actually, I'll mention like an open problem for your listeners. So if somebody wants to jump in and help, we can now do this for these large images, but we'd also like to do this for video, mm. right? Because video also gets downsized and edited mm. and readers would like to verify that the video is valid. Video files could easily be gigabytes long, right? 
And so the question is, how do we generate ZK proofs on such large amounts of data as a video? And so, yeah, this is a this is a good challenge for your listeners. If anybody wants to work on that, this is a good thing to try. I'm actually curious if the standards already refer to how to sign videos as well, or is it just for images? Yeah, so they focused on images because they yeah. were interested in uh, in the in the news application. So it's also it's also part of the innovation that could be by the, the listeners. So that's nice. Cool, cool. Yeah, how to sign a video, but more importantly, if you if you just do minimal editing to the video, like I don't know, like. Uh, Let's say you just want to zoom in on one particular character in the video and and and, yeah. and only publish that. How do you do a zero knowledge proof that that's the only thing you did? The only thing you did in the video is a zoomed in. And so, uh, yeah, prove that the resulting video came from a properly signed larger video. Yep. Yeah, it's good. It's a good challenge. Maybe with enough GPUs we can do it. But uh, right now, this this is beyond what we can do on on a single laptop. Yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe we'll have to wait for ASICs. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Quick question, Dan, about that. Do you need to have the f- underlying file in its fullest form or can you actually do things to like already kind of compress it just for the proving part of it? Like, don't you just need sort of the proof of validity in a way? You're, you're proving that it existed the way you say it existed, but when you put it into that proof, could you have already like compressed it down a lot? Yeah, so, so, the, so the original signature, of course, is on the raw data. So you would need the initial original raw data to prove that the original signature is is valid. Oh, okay. And then once you verify that, you, uh, that the initial signature is valid, then of course you can compress and do transformations and, and uh, prove that the only thing you did is those transformations. By the way, there's a list of authorized, of, of allowed transformations. And basically what this proof does yeah. is prove that the only thing you did to the image is these, these authorized uh, transformations. Hmm. So Dan, I feel like there's a lot of use cases we could touch on. Tell us another one. What else are you working on? Yeah, so another application of, uh, of ZK that's, uh, that's come up recently uh, is, is one that has to do with uh, trusted setup. Yeah, so let's talk about how to do, how to do setups. Uh, again, many of your listeners probably know that uh, some examples of uh, zero-knowledge constructions, they, they do require a trusted setup, right? So this is where one entity generates what's often called the powers of tau, and then tau is this, is this random secret value that that entity then has to f- has to forget. Yeah, it has to erase. And you know, often that's done with uh, some interesting ceremonies where people go and break the machines that the power of tau was generated on, or they do it in airplanes and they throw the machines off the airplane. Or they take like nuclear waste readings from uh, Chernobyl. That also <laughs> happened. Yeah. Right. 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 So there's all, all sorts of uh, interesting ceremonies that people do to generate these powers of tau. But it's really kind of crucial that once the trusted setup is, is finished, it's really crucial that the secret data is removed. Uh, you probably know the, the Ethereum Foundation is, is actually working on a Powers of Tau ceremony. This is a super, super interesting ceremony that they're doing because it's going to involve a very, very large number of people. Ooh. Yeah, and so very interesting project. And I'm, I'm really happy to see them uh, do this. This is probably the Powers of Tau that they're building is probably going to be useful for many other projects beyond just what the Ethereum Foundation needs. Is this the perpetual powers of Tau that they've been running for many years, or is it something else? So it's a smaller one. It's the okay. Deng sharding one. Oh. And yeah. that's going to be very core in Ethereum. So that's really interesting. Cool. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very important ceremony that's about to take place. And it supposedly will involve, it's the largest ever ever done. Yeah, it's supposed to involve like hundreds of thousands of, of users. 
So this is a paper that we submitted recently. This is a joint work with uh, Lara Nikolakonka, who actually uh, deserves a lot of credit for this idea. It's Tam Bregsdale, who deserves uh, huge amounts of credit for the implementation, and uh, with uh, Joe Bonneau, who's also fantastic. And uh, the idea there is basically to try to do this uh, work on a blockchain rather than uh, just do it as a standalone application. So you might ask, well, why do we need to do a trusted setup on a blockchain? The interesting motivation is that blockchains have anti-censorship capabilities, right? So if somebody tries to block you from writing to the blockchain, well, the whole point of a blockchain is it's designed to, to, to make it possible for you to write. So the interesting application here is if you try to run a trusted setup, maybe there is some network attacker that's trying to prevent an honest participant from participating in the setup, right? So maybe there's like a bunch of people who are in the setup but if the honest participants can be prevented from participating, then we have a problem. So it's interesting to run the setup on a, on a blockchain because we use the natural anti-censorship properties of a blockchain to make sure that all the honest participants can actually go in and participate in the setup. And this turned out to be kind of an interesting question. So now there's all these issues with how do you run uh, a setup on a blockchain? And so... Basically, the blockchain, what it would have to do is have to verify that every time a participant comes in and randomizes the current state of the setup, the blockchain has to verify that the participant really did its job correctly. Yeah, it didn't mess up the setup. Yeah, it actually really did participate and contributed randomness as opposed to overriding everybody else's randomness or just submitting junk altogether. So the blockchain replaces the coordinator part here, right? Exactly, exactly, ah. exactly. And it turns out there are kind of a couple of, of models here. So the two that, that are interesting is you can imagine putting the entire powers of Tau on the blockchain, yeah? And then basically the chain will just verify that every, every update is done correctly. So that's one, one approach. Uh, that works for, for small setups, right? Where like in dank sharding, you know, the amount of data that's generated is not that high, so you can imagine storing all of that on, on the blockchain. So the question is, what happens if you would like to actually not store this data on the chain, and instead you'd like to store it off-chain? In which case, what you could do is you can just store a commitment to the data on-chain, right? And so you have a commitment to the power of Tau that's stored on-chain, and now when someone updates the powers of Tau, what they would do is they would update the commitment that's stored on-chain, so they would upload a new commitment on-chain, and then provide a proof that the new commitment is a valid update of the powers of tau relative to the old commitment. Yeah, that would be the zero knowledge proof. Ah. Now this is kind of starting to be, to be kind of interesting. Yeah. How do you how do you do the, the, that proof? And that's basically kind of what's uh, what's worked out in the in the paper. One interesting question is now you have a data availability issue, which is somebody has to store these powers of tau. Yeah, so presumably we have to use one of the data, data availability services. You know, there are many of those that are that are now forming. That's where the powers of Tau will actually be stored. Mm. The chain itself is really just used for anti-censorship. And all it does is it just updates commitments, you know, from updater uh, to updater. So it seems to be like a good use of the properties of a blockchain. Of course, it'd be nice if we had a chain where gas costs were, were lower. So actually, you know, more people can participate mm -hmm. without having to pay the gas costs associated with each update. Um, you know, but hopefully that's that's uh, that's coming in the in the in the next couple of years. Mm. So anyhow, I thought this was kind of a, a cute application of zk connected to uh, to something that's stored on the blockchain. Yeah, and I, I do agree that it's really cool because in all the setups that I've seen and that I've participated or ran, um, basically you have to rely on social layers to enforce 
that and that censorship resistance property because you would post on Twitter or then you would cast some doubt maybe on the coordinator that censored you mm. and not having to rely on that is exactly why I invented blockchains and that's that's really <laughs> good use yeah yeah right right yeah so we'll, we'll see so maybe maybe uh even something like that can become can become commercial and used used in real uh, real systems yeah quick question about that dan when you actually produce so like you've you've talked sort of through the process of producing this i sort of imagine this happening on an l2 or cheaper than an ethereum ideally but the outcome of that does it go directly into the smart contract that activates the zkp or would it still have to do something like outside before you like i just i always think of the trusted setup as like this thing you have to do in order to start the snark or to start the process yeah i wonder is it all on chain or is it just this part no that's a that's a very good question so actually the proofs that uh participants contribute to prove that they updated the setup correctly of course that has to be done with what's called a transparent snark yeah so one that actually doesn't require a trusted setup so mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that we're using we're using a transparent snark to bootstrap uh, a snark that does require a trusted setup. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that what happens is the randomization process and the proof generation, of course, happens off chain. And then what the party that, uh, that did this work, what it would do is it, it would actually uh, write this data on chain in the chain, which is verify proofs. Yeah. So the chain basically does what it does best which is update commitments and verify that the, the update was done correctly by verifying a short proof. Um, I, I think, Anna, you were, you were kind of asking whether we can use this directly, like, let's say, in, uh, in, in some, is, let's say, ZKVM or something, right? Like, that's kind of what you were getting at? Exactly. Like, it's yeah. almost like, like some deployed snark on the, like, and this is where, even though I've done a number of episodes on the trusted setup, I don't know if I'm completely aware of, like, the moment that the, what is it, the SRS actually gets, activated or gets used like can I, I think the question here is does it go the full process like can you do this generation and then it it sort of like falls right into an, an on-chain zk snark and makes it private that's actually a great question so it's uh th and the answer is yes okay. it does right because what happens is the uh you know the, what we call the verifier parameters right the parameters that the verifier uses to uh, check proofs you know, those live on chain all the time. They just get updated every time the SRS is refreshed. But those do live on chain. And then, you know, any contract that wants to use them can just read them and use them to verify proofs. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, actually. That And that actually is completely supported. Cool. Yeah, but although I think that actually you might have a problem when you're talking about uh, deploying circuits, because when you, when you have Blanc and, let's say, other universal snarks, you usually have to go through this indexing step. And that's going to be hard to do. That on would chain. be done off chain. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the, exactly. the setup, the pre-processing setup, would be done yeah. would be done off chain. Uh, but that that's because you just there's no reason for the blockchain to actually do the indexing itself. Yeah. But you would have a hard time verifying that basically this was derived from from the parameters that were on chain. So you would still have this semi trust on the off chain process to deploy the contract, right? Uh, well, I mean, so that's interesting. If the wrong parameters were used in pre-processing yeah. and then you, uh, in the indexing uh, phase, and then you try to uh, generate a proof using the wrong parameters, yeah. the verifier will fail. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You you would verify. You'll, yeah. you'll end up producing <laughs> wrong proofs, right? So that's not very very helpful to anybody. Yeah. 
Uh, and then the on-chain contract will just reject those proofs. Yeah, I'm, I'm more thinking about in the context of, um, let's say, the dream of uh, updatable snarks where you you would have a snark that always updates and that you can keep using an up-to-date version whenever a new participant contributes more randomness. But I think maybe this indexing part a bit hurts that dream. Um, you know, that no, that's, again, an interesting point in yeah. that... Um, Every time you up you go through a series of updates, you can imagine like a batch of updates that 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 happen. Yeah. yeah, you would have to rerun the indexing algorithm. But the indexing algorithm is is uh deterministic, yes. right? Anyone can check that it was done correctly. So there's no trust assumption there. And so you just somebody would have to off-chain would have to rerun the indexing algorithm yeah, yeah. and then push push the results of the indexing, you know, the verifier parameters uh, on chain, and then and then uh, the contracts on chain would use it. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. A lot of people contributed to the secret randomness, and the point, of course, is that no one was prevented from contributing to the secret randomness. Yes, definitely. Because of anti-censorship. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, I, I don't know. I hope this will this will uh, some projects will actually end up uh, using this kind of this kind of mechanism. Although I have to say that what what the Ethereum Foundation is doing is super super interesting. So uh, that project, I'm really can't wait to see it uh, take place, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the the huge number of participants that contribute randomness there. Mm. So yeah, lots of things happening in the space. Yeah. So going from trusted setups, are there any other kind of spaces in the blockchain world? Maybe kind of areas that we're trying to tackle or or add zk stuff into. Yeah, the list is really long at this point. Maybe I can mention one more one more example. Sure, sure. So one thing that that we were interested in is uh, this question of how to run a, a DAO with a private treasury. Again, this is work with one of my uh, former students, uh, Griffin Dunaif. And the question basically is, if you run a DAO today on chain, you know everyone can see what the treasury of your DAO is, right? And this causes a problem where, say, when a DAO wants to participate in an auction, right? If you participate in an auction and everybody can see what your treasury is, you know, everybody knows exactly what your maximum bids can be. And this is not hypothetical. As you know, this is exactly what happened with the Constitution DAO, mm-hmm. right? Where, um, you know, the participants knew exactly what is the biggest or the largest bid that the DAO can issue. And then somebody just issued a, a, a larger bid and outbid them, yeah. right? So the question is basically how so a you can you can take this in two different ways you can say from a game theoretic point of view what is the correct auction mechanism where you have participants where some of them have private state you know humans basically have private state and some of them have public state where everybody can read their can read their minds yeah how do you design an auction mechanism in that sort of environment yeah and that's kind of a game theory question or a mechanism design question that should probably be solved, actually. I mean, I'm a little, uh, it's, it's kind of important for auction houses to uh, change the way they do auctions because DAOs participate and everybody yeah. can read the mind of the, DAO, of the DAO, can see exactly what their treasury is. Yeah. The other way to, go, to take this question is to say, well, you know, can we actually design a DAO that can participate in an auction and keep its treasury secret? And that's, again, where Z- ZK comes in, Yeah. And so the private DAO design—it's kind of a—it was kind of a fun design to uh, to work on—is basically where we build what's called a DAO platform. Yeah, so it's one contract that will service many, many different DAOs. Yeah, so Juicebox is an example of such a platform, right? Where it's one—literally, it's one contract in Ethereum that many different DAOs use. Mm. And this one contract basically makes it so that the treasury of all these DAOs is all combined together. So now somebody looks at, at the treasury of this one contract, 
All they'll see is the aggregate treasury of a large number of DAOs, but they wouldn't know the treasury of a particular DAO. And so to make that possible, it's very important that when someone sends funds to the DAO, they don't reveal to the public which DAO uh, is the recipient of those funds. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, you need to be able to send funds to the DAO in secret. Um, that is, you're sending funds to the platform, but the world, the public, doesn't see which DAO on the platform is the recipient of the funds. Mm. Yeah, and, and you can see that that's kind of where ZK techniques uh, start, uh, start to come in. Uh, so now the DAO basically has a, has a list of uh, deposits that were, or rather the platform has a list of deposits that were sent to it. You know, some deposits were meant for one DAO and some deposits were meant for another DAO. And now the, the, the manager of one particular DAO on this platform would actually have a secret key. It could use the secret key to then say, you know, these 15 deposits are mine and here's a proof that they're mine because I have a secret key that proves that these were actually meant for me. Uh, and then the DAO contract will say, sure, these 15 deposits really are for you. And therefore, you can, if you decide, you can go ahead and send them to the auction house to participate uh, in the auction. Yeah. Mm. And so it turns out that doing this, this is, again, where, where snarks turn out to be super, super useful. Because imagine you have uh, one particular DAO that received a large number of donations. Let's say, I don't know, 20,000 donations. Well, if you had to do a separate proof for every one of those donations, the DAO manager would have to prove this donation is mine, this donation is mine, that donation is mine. They would have to repeat that 20,000 times and the chain would have to verify those 20,000 proofs separately. Instead, you know, we can use, uh, you, you know, we can use snark batching techniques where we can take a bunch of proofs and squish them into a single proof and, and then just present that single proof over to the, to the contract and the contract can just now verify this one single proof that says, yes, all these, you know, 20,000 donations uh, belong to this one that were sent for, to this one DAO, and therefore um, the DAO manager can can direct those funds to the auction house. Yeah, so cool. and I have to say, this is something that still needs to be built commercially. Like uh, it, it works, it, it is a prototype that shows this is very practical. It actually works, it doesn't cost that much. And um, yeah, I don't know, you know, I'm hoping again, one of hopefully some of your listeners participate in DAO platforms <laughs> and maybe maybe we can take we can take that design and make it uh, make it real. It'd be, I think, it'd be something that DAOs, DAOs would really would really benefit from. Well, what kind of batching technique have you used here to make this efficient? Yeah, so uh, so actually, the it turns out the the basic proof is what we use is uh, it's it's sufficient to use a very simple uh, Sigma protocol. So it's sufficient to use just kind of a proof of discrete log. So the same type of proof that go into Schnorr signatures mm -hmm. uh, were actually sufficient. And so the batching, the naive batching, is to just use the same aggregation technique or same batching techniques that apply to verifying Schnorr signatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you need to verify a large number of Schnorr signatures, there's a way in which you can actually save some work there. And so that's uh, that was like the the simple design, but that doesn't bring it down all the way. Ideally, you know, the right thing to do is to actually use a snark to prove that you know these twenty thousand deposits are all mine produce a single proof that the contract can verify and uh, that would kind of make on-chain work uh, minimized. So there's still a need for a snark here yeah. that, uh, that's used primarily for speeding things up. I'm also curious if the design included some measures for um, compliance or traceability that, for example, the DAO could show to 
you know, someone that wants to look more deeply into their finances, that everything is fine? Yeah, so th that's, a, that's, again, a fantastic question. So compliance, yeah, this, we should definitely switch gears and talk about uh, ZK for compliance too. Mm. Um, so the basic design actually was just focused on the privacy of the treasury. But of course, now you're absolutely right. Everything that, as we learned, you know, you know, these systems do need to provide some compliance capabilities. And so that, yeah, that remains for the DAO application. That does remain to be done. And so, but that actually suggests maybe we should switch, switch topics. Sure. And talk a little bit about another area of where compliance is, might be useful, which is uh, for mixers. Yeah, so we're recording this right now, just a week after this whole FTX thing has gone down. And we also this summer went through the Tornado Cash OFAC sanctions. I've done a few episodes on that, just sort of showcasing like the impact and what it, what it's done. But I think it had a really, like both of these things are, I think are going to have a pretty profound impact on ZK research and use case development. Like on one side, can ZK actually be used to help mitigate some of these problems uh, in the future. So yeah, tell me, are you doing any work in that direction? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I'm actually glad to see how you uh, framed it, Anna, that ZK could be used for uh, privacy, but ZK and ZK can also be used for compliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, in fact, there are a couple of companies out there that are using ZK for compliance. I mean, one one example, of course, is Espresso Systems. That's kind of one of the one of the things that they promote. So in the, in the context of Tornado, there is a way to approach this from a technical point of view, which is to ask, how could have Tornado been designed, you know, to maybe reduce the risk of, uh, you know, the sanctions being applied to it? Yeah, so that's a tech, we can approach this from a technical point of view. Of course, you know, policymakers would approach this from a policy point of view, which is, you know, what's allowed, what's not allowed, and so on. But, you know, we're computer scientists. We like to think about technical questions. And so, you know, the, the, there's this interesting... An experiment. Yeah, it's an experiment, exactly. You know, I, I, I like how you say that. It, it is an experiment, which is... If we had to start over and we could redesign Tornado, is there a way to design Tornado in such a way that still provides strong privacy, but is compliant with, or, or maybe I would just say deter bad actors from using the service, right? Because really that's kind of the ultimate goal. Just we want bad actors to not use the service. So let me kind of summarize these kind of three approaches. These have been discussed uh, separately in, in, a, in a number of places, but let me just des uh, describe these three approaches that might help here. Again, we're, I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, none of us not are lawyers. So we have no idea if this would actually <laughs> satisfy the, you know, the, the, the sanctions folks. But, you know, just as an intellectual exercise, yeah, let's just think about how, what, what might have helped here. And by the way, I should say this is uh, something that we've written about. Uh, this is written about this with uh, Joe Brolson and Michelle Crover. And so let me kind of summarize three different avenues that we could, we could try to go down. The first one is actually... It's actually a somewhat weak, but let me say it anyhow. This is what we would call deposit screening, right? So deposit screening meaning, means that when someone tries to move into the contract, say into Tornado, the, the Tornado contract will actually check, is the source address on the current sanctioned list? Yeah, and you know, there are a bunch of companies that provide uh, a sanctioned list. It's actually, uh, these. Um, it's kind of interesting. So Chainalysis provides one, Elliptic provides one. These are kind of very simple contracts that you can look them up on chain and these contracts literally has have a function called is sanctioned. Yeah, and you call, you say is sanctioned address, and then the contract returns true or false mm. if the address is currently sanctioned or not. Yeah, so there are a bunch of these contracts available online. Last time I looked, there aren't that many addresses on that uh, on that list. So yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe um, 
they'll update more more aggressively in the coming years, but that's what's available today. So this is called deposit screening, where when you try to deposit into Tornado, basically Tornado would check if the address is currently sanctioned, and if so, it would just reject the deposit. Yeah, makes sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a simple simple solution. The, the problem is this doesn't really work. Yeah, <laughs> the reason it doesn't work is because you know if a hack happens and somebody moves the funds in, into Tornado, right, the hack would happen and within minutes, the funds would move into Tornado and there's no way the sanctioned list would update within minutes, yeah? Mm-hmm. And so by the time the, the sanctioned list has been updated to block that address, it's too late. Now the funds are already inside of the mixer. Yeah. yeah. So it's a good thing to do, but it doesn't quite solve the problem we want to solve. So the next idea is to use what we call uh, withdrawal screening. Yeah, so as you know, with uh, mixers, once you move your funds into the mix, you have to wait. You have to, the funds have to sit there for a while because if you just move them in and immediately move them out, you didn't mix at all, right? You, you, yeah. get, you get no benefit from, uh, from the mixers. So the funds have to sit there for a while. In fact, the recommendation is they sit there for a few days before you take them out so that you know, they get mixed with the rest of the traffic. Yeah. And so, uh, well, by the time you try, you, the bad actor, try to uh, withdraw the funds, Hopefully by then the sanctioned list has already been updated. And now your source address, the address from which the funds came, actually are now blocked. Or flagged, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Your source address is, is blocked or flagged. No, that's exact, exactly right. So withdrawal screening basically says that uh, at the time that you try to withdraw from the contract, uh, basically you have to prove that the source of the funds is not currently on the sanctioned list. Ooh. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is, this is what we call withdrawal screening. And what's interesting here is what's uh, the technical tool that's needed for this is what's called an exclusion proof. Yeah, so it's a very small change to the Tornado count contract, at least to Tornado Classic. It's a very small change that at the time that you're withdrawing, you've proven zero knowledge, again, what's called an exclusion proof, to say that the source address of the funds is not on the current uh, uh, sanctioned list. Wow. Technically, this is this is like, we know how to do this. It's quite simple. It's quite efficient. You know, exclusion proofs. If your listeners don't know about exclusion proofs, go read about them. It's quite easy to do exclusion proofs using Merkle trees. Yeah, there's a very simple trick that lets you do exclusion proofs using Merkle trees. And you can prove that your address is not on the list as opposed to uh, is on the list. What's interesting about this is if you are a bad actor, and you move funds into the contract, and then at the time you want to withdraw, your funds have been, sorry, your source address has been added to the, uh, to the block list, then basically your funds get trapped in the contract. You can never withdraw them. And so that's interesting because that actually discourages bad actors from moving into this contract to begin with, right? So maybe they'll just, you know, they'll stay away altogether. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe that's a way to help the design. Now, by the way, this this only applies to Tornado Classic. When you look at more uh, complicated designs where you can do transfers inside of the contract, things get a bit more complicated. One can even think through how to do uh, withdrawal screening even in that setup. So that's kind of the, the, the second approach. Yeah, does that make sense? So basically verify that you are not flagged during uh, at withdrawal time. And if you are flagged, well, sorry, you know, your funds are, are trapped. It's it's interesting though because Tornado itself did include this offline compliance mechanism, right, where you could reveal enough details to someone that wanted to verify that where the funds came from and so on. But this would make this on-chain verifiable, which which seems like a big improvement. 
And the, the compliance tool you're referring to was voluntary, right? So, you know, exactly. most, like, exactly. most likely a bad actor would just not go through that, uh, through that process. Exactly. It would, like, it would help an honest actor to, to show that their fines are okay, but a dishonest actor would just ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I should say that this withdrawal screening method, there are lots and lots and lots of variations of it that you can imagine. Yeah. But one takeaway from that is that hopefully, you know, because of the threat of your funds getting locked in the contract, that will just keep uh, bad actors away. But more importantly, you realize it doesn't hurt the privacy of good actors. Yes. Right? So good actors, you know, remain, you know, you're not able to uh, eavesdrop and, or, or peek into what they're doing. We should keep this tool in our pockets to remember there is a way to try and discourage bad actors from using the system without actually hurting the privacy of good actors. The third approach, uh, which is, I think, a little bit more problematic from a, pro from a privacy point of view, is what are called viewing keys, right? So viewing keys is probably something you discussed at length in the, on, your, on your podcast, Anna. Yeah. Right. So viewing keys is basically where the depositor has to encrypt the source address under some authority's public key. Which authority is not clear? You know, who owns the secret key is not clear. So viewing keys are in some sense kind of the, they, it's, a, it's a basically a backdoor, right? It's a backdoor yeah. to the privacy of people transacting with the system. And all the issues with backdoors come up in this, in this environment as well. So viewing keys definitely are a way to go. And in fact, it's interesting, our, many people in our community, in the blockchain community that you talk to and they, they want to implement compliance, viewing keys is sort of the th first solution that they go to. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure you discussed on a viewing keys at length, I imagine, in other podcasts. So we don't, I don't know that we need to talk about them too much well, I here. Don't know, I don't know if I've talked about them at length. They've come up. But actually, in this comparison that you just made, like listing those three approaches, it does seem like a very kind of, it's like the, the big hammer one, but you actually open the door to a data leakage of all sorts. What if the wrong person gets a hold of those and then can see all of the data and leaks all the information? So there's lots of problems associated with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are all the questions. You, I mean, you're asking exactly the right, the right questions. These are all the questions that come up generally with, uh, with uh, backdoors. And uh, I guess that's, that's the term that they're, they're, they're called in industry. Who gets access to the backdoor? What if the backdoor is stolen? What if it's lost? Yeah, there are all, all sorts of uh, administrative and management questions that come up with that. So what's interesting is I just wanted to kind of contrast the fact that yeah. viewing keys is kind of where people naturally go to when they need to deal with compliance. But I just wanted to mention also this uh, withdrawal screening, at least in the context of Tornado Classic. Yeah. Um, that is another, another tool in our toolbox Again, we don't know if this will satisfy regulators. I mean, we have no idea if this will actually satisfy the requirements, but I think it's a good tool to remember and, and keep in our pockets if uh, we need to design uh, compliance systems. That was interesting. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, the open question there is, it does get more challenging if you can do user-to-user -user transfers inside the contract. There, there are multiple sources for funds when you withdraw those funds. And then all that would have to be kept track of. And then it becomes harder to do this, uh, this proof uh, during withdrawal. So mm. there are also interesting kind of questions to think about in, in terms of how to design this for more complicated systems. It would be more complicated if there was a swap, if there was any like uh, decks in there, any sort of action. No, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, things, exa that's exactly right. Things get more complicated if the source of the funds could actually be multiple accounts. And now you would have to do a proof that none of the accounts that contributed to uh, to the account from which we're withdrawing is currently on the block list. Yeah, and that's that's mm. a more complicated thing to do. 
I think I think the situation is even worse because you yourself in that anonymity pool, you yourself don't even know the source of funds after a few transfers. So it's it's even harder. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So actually, there's an interesting design problem here, right? So it turns out there are actually ways to design this, but now there's a trade-off between privacy and compliance. So yeah. uh, there, I, I'd say, again, there's an interesting design question there on, on, on how to do this in these more complicated systems. So let's kind of continue on this line, though, where we can actually use like elements of zero knowledge or ZK proofs to actually help prevent any sort of financial malfeasance. I mean, here I'm obviously talking about what happened with FTX. Small caveat here, FTX was a centralized exchange. I think anyone who listens to this show knows the difference where it was more like a bank than actually like anything on chain. But I know that it's been floated, this idea of like proof of reserve through ZK, this idea that you could use ZKPs to prove that there is some sort of funds backing the activity that's happening. So yeah, I'm curious if you've been working on that, if that's like a, a topic in your in your group. Yeah, so funny funny you should mention this, Anna, because this is actually something that uh, I guess we worked on many years ago. And again, I should say this is uh, joint work with uh, Dagger, Benedict Bunz, Joe Bonneau, Clark, and uh, uh, myself, the system called Provisions. I think it dates back to 2015 or 14. I'm not exactly sure. Oh, wow. Uh, but this was in response to, uh, to Mount Gox. Yeah, so FTX is not the first exchange to fail, as many <laughs> of your listeners know. Uh, yeah, we've had these, pro- these problems actually for quite a while now, although maybe not to the same extent. And so the question was basically, how can an exchange prove that it's solvent and do it in zero knowledge, right? So what does it mean to prove that it's solvent? Right, it needs to prove that its obligations are less than its assets, right? And so exchanges generally are kind of, might be nervous about doing this because they might not want to reveal how many assets they have. They might not want to reveal what their customers' obligations are, you know, how many customers they have, what their customers have in their accounts. So this is a perfect application for zero knowledge, right? The way this works is the exchange, there are two parts to it. Yeah, the exchange basically commits to its assets. So it will give a zero knowledge proof that it has so many assets on chain. And then it commits to its obligations. Yeah, so it proves and it basically computes a commitment to its total uh, set of obligations to its customers. And the interesting thing is every customer can log into the exchange. You know, when they use their wallet to log in, they can automatically check that their balance in the exchange was included in the commitment to the obligations. Yeah, so the customers sort of inherently as they as they interact with the exchange, they basically check that their accounts were included in the obligations that the exchange committed to. Yeah. And so over time, you know, if enough customers do this, uh, the commitment to the obligations is trustworthy. We know that this commitment really does represent the obligations that the exchange has to its customers. And then the only thing that's left is a zero knowledge proof that the value in the committed assets is greater than or equal to the value in the committed obligations. Yeah, so this is something that in principle, exchange can do, they could have done seven or eight years ago, right? So Mm. uh, if the funds, if basically the exchange loses the funds, it will not be able to do these proofs anymore, yeah? And so I guess, you know, in the case of, I'll go back to to history since I don't wanna talk about uh, recent events, uh, but uh, you know, in the case of Mt. Cox, basically as soon as the funds- we don't know everything yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
as soon as the funds were extracted from Ungox, they would no longer be able to produce these solvency proofs. And you can imagine the solvency proofs would be created once every 24 hours. So immediately when, when bad things happen, they can't produce uh, solvency proofs anymore and uh, the, the, the issue would be, be, would be detected. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there are lots of caveats to this. If you start to think about this, there are many ways in which exchanges can still complete the solvency proofs, even though they might not control the funds. For example, they can take a loan a temporary loan in order to just do the solvency proof and then pay the loan back. Yeah. Um, just as an, as an example. Yeah. So there, there are still, you know, funny games, funny games they can play with. But, you know, the hope is that uh, if this is deployed, you know, if they have to do, they have to produce this proof every 24 hours, you know, it makes people think twice. You know, if we, uh, if we take action X, we won't be able to produce a proof. Maybe that will prevent them. That will just make them, it's a mental block to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be taking action X to begin with. Yeah, because that would cause the proofs to fail. Mm. Uh, so it's another, you know, it's not a foolproof solution, but it's, it's another, uh, you know, kind of the defense in depth uh, mechanism. So it's one of these things that, you know, we, we back in 2015, 16, 17, we tried to get exchanges to, to implement this. Yeah, this would have been, it seems like a kind of a pretty natural thing to, for exchanges to use, you know, Exchanges had other other priorities. This does develop, require some development work, and so what I, what I'd like to suggest that maybe to your listeners, if folks are interested, maybe we should k- kick off a standardization process around this, right? Why don't we have like a committee or you know a, a standards body that decides on what is a proof of a zero knowledge proof of solvency? You know, we'll have a a standard that says here are the formats that here's what we're committing to, here's what the proof proves. Uh, all these things will be standardized, then companies will actually be able to implement the standard in such a way that it will be very easy for exchanges to integrate, well, easy in quotes. It will be easier for exchanges to incorporate this into their into their workflow. And then boom, every 24 hours, they'll generate a proof. And similarly, wallets, wallets could integrate this into their, um, into their processes and kind of the proofs will be checked sort of uh, automatically by lots of customers. Yeah. So if we have a if we have a standards for this, you know, it could go it could go a long way. And again, it's not a foolproof solution, but it's kind of one of these defense and depth mechanisms that might, you know, in some cases might prevent this from happening again. Mm. What's amazing about what we just covered is like so many of these examples, I feel like are great for listeners to hear and start brainstorming around. And now that there's some proof of concepts or some papers written up about this, like you can start to think about this in different contexts. And then hopefully we can start to see like all these new use cases. Honestly, the reason all these use cases are possible, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact it's only possible because of the development of frameworks to do zero knowledge proofs very efficiently in a way that's easy for developers to use. Yeah. Mm. This has only happened because, you know, the blockchain community needs these zero-knowledge proofs. So uh, there's been a massive effort in developing this technology. Otherwise, none of this would be possible. So I think we should acknowledge, you know, give credit where credit is due. Definitely. Is it in the, do you think it's in the languages or in the libraries? Like, is it the fact that things have become more efficient or is it because there's now like tools to engage with it without needing to be kind of in the circuit, like using it more as like a black box. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I totally, totally agree with you, Anna. It's um, what's interesting and kind of remarkable is the fact that now we can actually have developers work on zero knowledge proofs without actually knowing the details of how they work, right? They can interact with the frameworks and make those things work without having to spend two years understanding all the nitty gritty details. 
10 years ago, you know, Kobe, you, you know this very well. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, if you wanted to, to develop a, or, or use a zero-knowledge proof in your system, you basically would have had to hire a team of cryptographers to go and understand all the different proof systems and then implement everything yourself. These days, I can tell you that even in our course, we have a, a SNARK project where the students develop, like they, within a week, they're able to do inclusion proofs in Merkle trees. Basically, we do right now, we do it in CIRCOM, but we're probably going to move to one of the other, one of the newer frameworks. Within a week, uh, some, someone can go from zero to building like a um, prover and a verifier uh, without too much effort. That's only possible because of the development that's happened over the last decade. Yeah, I mean, I mean you don't even have to go 10 years ago, like even six years ago, I remember working with Libsnark, you already have to work for a month just to support fixed point arithmetic or negative numbers. And now, now you have this out of the box and you can verify it on Ethereum directly. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, and look, the proof is the fact, again, we can do this with one, in one week. Students can go from yeah. zero to writing, writing software that generates proofs. <laughs> yeah. So, so then one of the more interesting works that I've seen coming from your group uh, recently was the collaborative SNARKs paper where um, you could have multiple people collaborate on the different secret parts inside the SNARK and produce a proof. And I was curious to, to hear about what were the applications that you had in mind for this and like what, what, what it is and so on. So I think it would be interesting. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Kobe. Uh, yeah, so this is something that uh, worked on with, my, with Alex Ostemir, who you know very well. I think he's been on the podcast uh, a couple of times. Totally. And, and so the question was basically, what do you do when you need to generate a proof but the witness for the proof is actually distributed across multiple parties, right? Traditionally, when we think about zero-knowledge proofs, the secret witness is only held by a single party. So what, what do you do when this witness is itself distributed across multiple parties? And this comes up actually naturally in a, a, a lot of different situations, right? So we were thinking of like in the, in the banking system, if you need to produce a proof on the transaction, on the global transaction graph, you know, well, every bank only sees its view of the transaction graph. Nobody really sees the global transaction graph. And yet somehow they want to produce a proof on the global transaction graph. So that's an example where the witness is split between multiple parties. There's another nice example. Actually, I think Pratush brought this up with, where um, imagine you are a weak device and you want to produce a proof. What you can do is you can take your witness and break it up into multiple pieces give the pieces, each piece to a large server. And now neither one of the servers will know your witness because it's secrets, mm -hmm. but together they cannot work together to produce a proof over all the pieces. Yeah, and presumably that actually uh, gives speed up over doing, doing the proof on, a, on, a, on this weak device. Uh, yeah, so there are lots of situations where these collaborative proofs actually come up when you have to produce a, a proof using a witness that's distributed across multiple parties. So the, the question then is, how do you do it? And from a theor theoretical point of view, this is immediate. The way you do it is you basically run the proving algorithm as an MPC among the parties that hold the witness. Yeah, so I hope your listeners know about multi-party computation, right? Multi-party computation Definitely. lets you compute on shared data. Yeah, well, here we have a shared data, right? We have a witness that's shared across multiple parties. They can run a multi-party computation and generate the proof Using, using the shared witness. So to do that, what it means is we have to design a snark where the proving algorithm is MPC friendly. The proving algorithm has to be efficiently implementable inside of an MPC protocol. 
So how do we do that? Well, it turns out you can actually take some of the existing snarks and massage them somewhat, and they become NPC friendly. Yeah, so you can actually run them very efficiently inside of an NPC. To me, by the way, this is interesting because it's kind of a new criteria for snarks, right? We have all these demands from snarks, right? We want fast provers, we want no trusted setup, maybe we want quantum resistance. This is kind of a new demand from a snark. Not only does it have to satisfy all the existing properties, also the prover has to be NPC friendly. Mm. Yeah, so how do we build snarks that, uh, that are NPC friendly? And, you know, for example, it turns out we can take our friend uh, Plonk and massage it in a little bit and how it works. And lo and behold, it becomes NPC friendly. So we can actually run the prover in an NPC. Now, the amazing thing that happened, this is something that hardly ever happens in the world of NPC, but the amazing thing that happened is that it turns out that when the, that's, you know, snark proof generation is so heavyweight that in fact, even when you run the prover inside of the NPC, most of the work is done on a local computation to compute the actual snark. Yeah, so the overhead of the NPC is minimal. It's like at most a factor of two, yeah? This is like unheard of. Usually when you take a computation and you convert it to an NPC, things slow down by a factor of a thousand. Yeah, but snark proof generation is already so hard that the overhead of the NPC is really not, not that high. It's quite, quite negligible. So the lesson here, and again, this is something, again, your listeners might uh, should probably know about. The lesson is it's actually not that hard to generate a collaborative proof. It's really not much harder than just generating a regular proof. Yeah, the overhead of NPC, if you do the snark correctly, you know, if you implement the snark correctly, then the overhead of NPC is, is almost negligible. It's kind of doesn't add much complexity. This, by the way, I think the experiment went up to like 30, 30 provers or so. So it's NPC across 30 parties. And even then, the overhead was, uh, was not that high. There are, there are graphs in the paper that, um, that, that show this. And so, yeah, I, I, th I thought it was kind of a bizarre situation because, like, again, in the world of NPC, usually NPC introduces huge overheads. And here, yeah. it's almost for free. Yeah, the overheads are so huge already. And look yeah. <laughs> And and like the final proof that you get is, um, it looks very similar to to an existing proof. So you can basically expect the same verifier efficiency, which which is really appealing as well. So basically, people can use it in existing environments, which is really cool. Yeah, that's exactly right. By the way, there's one subtlety that I wanted to point out, which is, you know, when the witness is distributed across multiple parties, the threat model now becomes a little bit different, right? Because now, let's say there are three provers trying to work together. Prover number one might actually try to be malicious so it could extract prover, prover number two's witness, right? And so that, that's kind of what the NPC protects against. However, there are some things that the NPC cannot protect against, right? In particular, prover number one can cook up a fake witness and see whether the NPC protocol results in a final correct proof, yeah? And in doing that, Inherently, unavoidably, prover number one learns something about prover number two's witness in the sense that it knows, oh, my cooked up witness actually combined with prover number two's and three's witnesses results in a, in a valid proof. Yeah. So that inherently leaks something about prover number two's and three's uh, witnesses. So just I think it is important to keep in mind when you use collaborative proofs, it's perfectly fine to do. There's one subtlety you have to remember in that inherently you have to leak some information about your witnesses to the other provers. Yeah, in particular, just the fact that you have a piece of a witness of a valid witness that, that actually will leak to the other provers. So there's one subtlety I just want to make sure people are aware of so nobody falls into this, uh, this trapdoor. 
So you just chatted about like the MPC-ZK combination. It's sort of in a way we're not used to because MPCs are usually seen as like the trusted setup part of a ZKP. But I want to sort of finish off with a topic. I don't know if we talked about it last time. We might have, but it is the ZKFHE combination. And I'm curious if you're keeping tabs on that, if, you're, if you've been paying attention to Because FHE, when we met, I think you were the one who actually introduced it to me potentially on our last episode, this idea that you could have this place where you could do like private computation. Have you been following that? Does, any, does your group ever touch on that? Or yeah, what do you think of it? Do you think we're still a ways off? Look, I mean, F, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Anna. I mean, F, FHE is kind of one of the, some, the most amazing things that happen in, in, in crypto, right? I mean, the fact that we can compute arbitrarily on ciphertexts is, is mind-blowing. Yeah, what's, I guess the, the, the space of FHE is also advancing quickly, right? There are a couple of companies uh, working in the space. And, and so th- that technology is maturing quite rapidly uh, as well. So uh, there, there's some connections between FHE and blockchains as well. Yeah, so there's kind of two touch points between ZK and, and FHE. Uh, so one p- touch point is where ZK can help FHE in that uh, the FHE model is right now in some, some, in some sense what we call uh, honest but curious, where you kind of assume that the person that's computing on ciphertext is computing the right function. Well, what if you don't trust that person and you'd like them to prove that they computed the mm. right function? Well, that, that's where you can kind of use your knowledge to say, you know, hey, Mr. Computer, you computed on ciphertext, but please also include a proof that you computed the right function. And so that's an application of ZK to FHE. Uh, there's also an application of FHE to ZK. Maybe I won't get into that, but it turns out there are actually constructions that we can do using it using FHE that are that are beneficial to ZK. But maybe we can leave that for a future episode to, some, to another time. <laughs> Sounds good, Dan. Thank you so much for sharing all of this work. I feel like. I'm going to use this episode probably towards like any future hackathon that we do. I'm going to send people to listen to this one because I think they're going to get a lot of really great ideas that they could potentially then use for creating products actually with a lot of this stuff. So yeah, thanks so much for that rundown. This is great, Anna. By, by the way, just to show you the, 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 the wealth of the space, we didn't even get to everything that we could have talked about. <laughs> True. Uh, it would have been fun to also talk about Hyperplunk and uh, how Hyperplunk works. It would have been fun to talk about uh, generalizations of IOPs to things like uh, FIOPs, uh, but we can leave that to another another episode. I think what it shows is just how broad the space is and how much activity is going on in the, in, the, in this area. So, Anna, thank you so much for running this podcast series. I think it's really a fantastic tool for the for the community. Yeah, thanks for being on. I do want to say one thing before we sign off, and that's that we do. I think as this airs, we're in the midst of zk hack which are like month-long multi-session workshops and puzzle hacking. And Dan, you're, one of your students actually helped us with one of our puzzles this time around. So I wanted to say a big thank you. I think by the time this airs, that puzzle should have been released into the wild. So if anyone's listening and wants to find out more about that kind of thing, check out ZK Hack. I'll add the links in the show notes to that. Yeah, and thanks so much for the education work you do in this space because... I do feel like a lot of the people who are coming into cryptography and computer science, like you're their first impression of what is going on in the ZK world. And I think it's been really fun working with you on these videos. And yeah, I guess, I hope we get to do more. Fantastic. Likewise. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Kobe. Cool, cool. Thank you. It was fascinating. All right. I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Tanya, Henrik, and Rachel. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.